Hey friends, and welcome back to our Holy Conversations podcast, a podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. We're so glad that you have joined us today. And I do have my co-host, Reverend Bob Kaler with me, but he's not really with me because he's in Colorado. How are things in Colorado, Bob? Uh, we're doing well. We were just talking about uh, going back to worship. We're still in the midst of of COVID-19 and all of that. And we've we've done outdoor worship, as I mentioned before in our last episode, but I preached in a 35 mile an hour wind, which I don't think I've ever done before this past <laughs> week. And so I don't know if it was a Pentecost moment or not, because we also have forest <laughs> fires around us. So, oh man, but it, it was, it was pretty crazy, but, but anyway, well, I'm um, glad you survived it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you said you guys have been back in worship and it's hard to get people to come. And yeah, yeah. in Oklahoma, we've had churches that have been open for quite a while now, but we kind of waited. And, and then when the upswing in cases came back, we just decided to hold off a little longer, but we opened up for one service. Normally we have three and uh, just not nearly the same amount of people as would usually join us. So it's a weird time, but I think it's also an opportunity for us to, to kind of take a pause. Maybe sometimes this is history telling us that we need a break yes. and uh, we need to go back to uh, some reevaluating what we value. And um, while we grieve our losses, we certainly grieve those who have been victims of this pandemic but it's also an opportunity for us to look ahead, and that's what we're doing today. So that's why I want to introduce our guest today, who I'm really excited about. Our guest is Associate Professor of Wesleyan and Methodist Studies at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. He's the author of several books, including books on the class and band meetings in early Methodism. He blogs at Vital Piety, KevinMWatson.com where he's been doing a series of outlines on Wesley's sermons, which have been really wonderful. He's one of the most dynamic young scholars in Methodism and is a collector of fine Bibles, which I find fascinating. I wound up buying a Bible, Kevin, because of your recommendation. So welcome, Kevin <laughs> Watson, awesome. to the podcast. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, I have this NIV Pitt Minion Cambridge oh, Bible, Bible with a goat skin cover that I just love to hold in my hand. It's so, you never, you, you talk about fine Bibles. I never thought about that as being a thing, but it really is a thing. Yeah, it is. And I think it's actually kind of a resurgence right now, of, um, you know, and, and it's well supported. Um, it's interesting to me to notice the translations that are more supported than others, but it's been really fun to kind of learn about over the last couple of years. I was trying to find one in NRSV because that seems to be the, you know, the translation I love to use for, for uh, study and things like that. But can't find it in that. It's mostly in the other the other translations at this point. Yeah, it's not as well supported. Cambridge does make a great NRSV, but it's they don't have as many options as as a lot of the other translations do. Well, if you're looking for advice on buying fine Bibles, go to kevinmwatson.com and you will find <laughs> plenty of options to, to look at that. But we're not here to talk about fine Bibles today, although we love the scriptures. We're here to talk about class and band meetings and how they were part of early Methodism, a major part of it, really the method in Methodism, but also how we might look ahead and how they're being used in the church today and how they might be used in the future of Methodism. So Kevin, you are the expert. So tell us a brief history of the class and band meetings in early Methodism. 
Yeah, so the the band meeting was actually first, and Wesley came across the band meeting through his interaction with um, German Moravians that had come to England as missionaries, uh, and they were the the key kind of the main influence or what they're best known for was the their impact on Wesley understanding the doctrine of justification by faith and especially um, the witness of the Spirit and assurance that he could have an assurance that he was saved now and. Uh, and walk in that. And so his famous Aldersgate Street experience comes from that. And when he joined the Aldersgate Society, he was actually a part of founding it. Um, the society for a while was basically a band meeting. Uh, and the, the, um, it kind of grew from there, but it was something that when Wesley had disagreements with Moravians down the road over some other issues, uh, they, the band meeting was something he continued to, to sort of cling to and, and recommend and, and encourage Methodists uh, strongly to use. Uh, and it was basically a, a group where a small number of people of the same gender and marital status uh, would confess sins to each other. So it was kind of super deep, um, very intimate, and kind of no room for hiding. In fact, the fifth question in, in the rules of the band societies that Wesley wrote is, is there anything you desire to keep secret? So there's even a question that sort of explicitly goes at, are you still hiding anything? Is there anything you haven't told us? Uh, and the the value that Wesley found in that is I think he developed his own theology was that Methodism has such a strong theology of holiness, um, but he kind of has this pastoral sensibility and, and I think kind of a practical theology that he realized that a lot of Methodists were still struggling with kind of besetting sins in their lives, and they needed to have a, a place to kind of talk about that and a place to find one to kind of get it out into the open to bring um, the darkness into the light and to, to re be reminded of uh, the promise of forgiveness and pardon that comes through um, the gospel of Jesus Christ to claim the promises of scripture uh, and and also to to have the opportunity for, for a new beginning. The class meeting came after the band meeting um, and was, was really uh, something that Wesley says he kind of stumbled upon. It's, it's one of the few things that Wesley actually uh, was really innovative in Wesley's involvement in Methodism. Most of the things in Methodism, he just says, oh, this works. And then he just borrows it and plugs it in like the band meeting. But the class meeting came about originally as a way to pay off the building that they had built in Bristol that was creatively called the new room. Uh, and they were trying to, a group of 12 people were wrestling with how are we going to do this. And uh, a Captain Foy, who's otherwise unknown to, to historians, suggested that they divide the society up into groups of 12 and that one of the, each of the people present would take on one of those groups, go to their house every week and basically ask for a contribution towards the, the building debt. Uh, and as they did that, they realized they had a quality control problem. So Methodism had uh, a, this document called the general rules, which we've kind of sloganized today um, as do no harm, do good. And unfortunately, oftentimes stay in love with God. But the third rule was attend upon the ordinances of God, which were practices, prayer, scripture reading, worship, receiving the Lord's Supper. Um, and the, the three rules were actually not, the point of the rules wasn't the specific kind of handles, but it was actually this concrete practices under each one. So do no harm was fleshed out by a variety of things that Methodists were expected to not do. And there was a common kind of way of life, rule of life that was reflected in it. And so as these class leaders were going around to collect their money, they realized that many Methodists were not actually keeping the general rules. And they could tell that even just by knocking on their door at a certain time of the day and asking for this contribution, it was obvious to some uh, that, that the rules weren't being observed. And so it gradually shifted to the classes became not just a means of building debt reduction, but also 
a way of checking in on how folks were living. And then it kind of shifts to this, the kind of question it's best known for today, how does your soul prosper? Oftentimes is, is rephrased today as something like, how is your life with God? Or how are you doing really? But it became a place to, to check in with each other week after week. Um, and the, to me, the most important thing for, for people to know about the class meeting was that every Methodist was required to be a member of a class meeting. So membership in early Methodism was actually located in at the class meeting level, not at the, the level of a worship service. Um, so you were a Methodist because you were somebody who attended a small group every week and every person who attended gave an account of how their faith was, how they were walking with the Lord over the past week. Um, and the value for that for me is that it helped people to really learn how to speak the language of their souls, how to speak the language of their faith. What is God doing in my life? And it helped people to learn how to look at their lives through the lens of the gospel. So those meetings, I, I, I think you put it this way, that to be a Methodist was to be in a class meeting. Yeah. At a very minimum. Yep. That was yep. true. For some reason... And, and I think there are reasons, and you talk about this in your book on the class meeting. The, the class and band meetings, though, faded from Methodism uh, by the 19th century. Um, so what, what do you think was the, the reason why? Here you have this, this thing that really is the engine that drove mm -hmm. the early Methodist movement, and then suddenly it, it disappears, but Methodism still remains. What happened? Yeah, so so part of what I think is important to, to be explicit about is I think a big part of the power of Methodism was that everyone was connected at some level to other people who were specifically asking them about their discipleship, right? Like what's really happening um, as a follower of Jesus Christ in your life? Is it doing any work in your life? Um, and so I think that was a, a key piece of the practice. Um, everybody is connected uh, and, and in an accountable way, not just connected kind of um, generically. I think what happened were, were sort of two things. One, there was a kind of revolution of small groups in a broader variety of ways. And the clearest way that was expressed was through the rise of the Sunday school movement. But you also had things like UMYF, which is United Methodist Youth Fellowship. And it, it was Epworth League before that, but basically like the rise of youth groups and then kind of the proliferation of special interest small group ministries. So small groups that are targeting particular demographics that are really about meeting their felt needs on their terms, as opposed to a sense that this is something that every Christian needs to have. And it's, it's not important for you because it will feel great to you to do it, or you, it's somehow like you're leveraging it to make your life better, be a better parent or succeed at work. It's just that you're a Christian and you're trying to be a Christian and you need this place to have people pressing in and asking you if you're doing the basic things you ought to be doing in order to grow in your faith. Um, so Sunday school really becomes kind of the, the big kind of new thing, you know, the it's kind of the grass is always greener on the other side, I guess, at some level. And um, Sunday school marks a shift, I think, both in the culture and higher education and a host of different things going on where there's an interest more in information, uh, learning about mastering content and so forth. And so as, I, as I've talked about it before, there's a shift from a transformation-driven approach to, um, to Methodism to an information-driven approach. Uh, and I, and that it, it increasingly shifts to sort of, do you know what you need to know in order to be a Christian? Uh, and I think as, as that sort of grows and then maybe morphs into a bit of an extreme, I mean, all of these things, I think, usually come out of 
understandable good reasons. And that was the case, I think, with Sunday school too. There was a desire to be more biblically literate, um, to help people learn to read by using scripture. I mean, there were a variety of different um, noteworthy and, and laudable bases behind the Sunday school movement and its rise. But it also shifts more and more towards a cognitive understanding of the Christian life, that a Christian is primarily a person who thinks thoughts and thinks things about their life and so forth. And one of the examples I use to illustrate this is if, if I want to run a marathon and I you know, subscribe to Runner's World magazine, I go to Fleet Feet, get fitted for the perfect shoes, buy some, you know, like the perfect running shorts and shirts that helps you not get as hot when you're running from Under Armour, whatever. I mean, these are all my sponsors, so I have to work them in. Um, <laughs> it's like, why am I naming so many specific names? But, you know, you get all the gear, all the stuff, and there's really only one thing you actually have to do to be able to run a marathon, and that's you've got to start running. And if you have all the stuff, but you don't actually start running, uh, then then you're not actually a runner, and you have no hope of of successfully running a marathon. Uh, and I think that's that's a similar kind of trap that that we fell into in um, some of the the ways that the Sunday school movement could misfire, because it was kind of all up here what we think, and there's a, you lose track of what what's what am I doing with my body? How am I spending my money and my time, um, and so forth? Is what I know actually being reflected in how I live? And so the class meeting. I think was a was a corrective to that or a preventative measure really because it was first and the second thing this will be a lot shorter is there was a cultural shift where Methodism I think is becoming more and more aware of its status within the U.S. that it's grown and become really large uh, and there are a number of things if you're kind of a mainstream American that you don't talk about in polite society you don't talk about how much money you make um, so you wouldn't just you know buttonhole somebody and say hey what was your paycheck um, you don't talk about politics so you don't just you know, ask off the cuff who somebody voted for. If you do, then you, you know, you've shown kind of you don't have emotional intelligence in that particular context. And the third thing is religion. You don't ask somebody uh, direct questions about their faith. And to me, the great tragedy of, of, of kind of what I've seen as I've been working at this, you know, in recent years is that that was brought into the church in a way that I think people didn't even really consciously realize, but that I think for many United Methodists, it would seem sort of like uncouth or impolite if it, during the passing of the peace in a worship service, you ask like, how are you really doing in your faith? Like people would, I think a lot of people because of the culture and how United Methodism has developed, unfortunately, that would seem to be too invasive and too personal of a question to ask. You know, I love what you're saying here, Kevin, about um, that we've kind of shifted from this idea of transformation to more information. I mean, mm -hmm. what you're saying just makes perfect sense. I'm sure our listeners are having like light bulbs go on just like I am all over the place. But it's so interesting to me that with your books, we seem to kind of be seeing a revival of the class meetings. And mm -hmm. even when I, like I'm a student at Asbury Seminary, I'm working on my MDiv right now. And as I have been talking to students there, uh, they've been talking about the class meetings that they're in and the mm. difference that it's making in their lives. And I mean, I can see it all over their faces. Mm. It's incredible to think about the transformation that's happened uh, in their lives. And so tell us a little bit about what you're seeing happening. Like what's your take on that? And why are these meetings coming back into practice? Why do you think we're seeing that revival? Yeah, um, thank you for that, that question. It, it has been really encouraging. Um, the class meeting book actually came out of uh, 
something I would say was close to kind of a, a word from the Lord. It was at the 2012 General Conference, and um, I was teaching at Seattle Pacific University at the time, and I had to, to keep track of it as much as I could because of uh, the classes I was teaching and, and so forth. And um, But watching the live stream was just depressing. It was spiritually very depressing to me. And um, and somewhere along the way, I, I turned it off and, and spent some time in prayer and was really just kind of lamenting. Um, and and honestly, I didn't, I, at that moment, I was kind of just like, I don't want to be United Methodist anymore. Like, this is terrible. And I don't really understand. I don't, it's hard for me to have hope for how this is going to be. You know, my sense is that people with good intentions across the spectrum have been doing the best that they could for a long time. And things don't seem to be getting better. They seem to be getting worse. Um, so it was a pretty low moment for me. And, and in that, I'd sort of felt like I was sort of asked a series of questions is how you're feeling right now from me you know and it was my, that was pretty obvious like no probably not um and there were there was a sort of series of things and, and it, my mind was kind of led to like what's something concrete and practical that you could do that would that you know would be positive and hopeful um, if it happened and um and the the i sort of had this like vision of wouldn't it be insane if you could help start a thousand class meetings like that that would roughly, there'd be roughly 12,000 people who were doing something that would be a, as clear of a metric as I can come up with that shows they're growing in their faith. Um, and so I tried to write a resource that called people back to that practice, but also could be used to sort of as scaffolding to create something. My assumption was that most United Methodist churches in 2012 had not even heard of the class meeting, let alone you know, we're ready to just start them. So I was trying to figure out how do you start from nothing and uh, teach people what this is and also teach them how to do something that's going to feel vulnerable and uncomfortable um, at, when they when they start out. And so the the first chapter, the, the question at the end, there's questions about the chapter because those are comfortable for people who have been in more study, you know, book studies. But then there always tries to be a kind of transformation question. And that first question was, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how close have you felt to God this week? Um, and my hope in that was, I was actually, you know, I thought it was a good starting point, but I also thought the the goal is to ask a question that's easier to answer than argue with. And so if you just give me a number, most people will just tell you a number and hope that that, you know, it goes away and you move on to the next person. And then you can use that to say, oh, interest, like what well, well, made last week a seven. And you've sort of like, I actually didn't intend it cynically, but you, you've almost like tricked them. Like now you've, you're on the hook for a seven and I just, can you give me a sentence or two for why it's a seven? And all of a sudden people are talking about their faith and, um, and it, it kind of, you build from that hopefully. Um, and I tell that story just to say that, that it really has become a testimony for me because I have always struggled with kind of the things I see from my vantage point in the academy, my heart really beats for the local church and just wants to see people's lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and if, if what I'm doing isn't, isn't producing fruit, then it, it's, it's, it's just empty. Um, and, and so to see the book, and that's one of the reasons I'm comfortable kind of framing the whole story as a word from the Lord, because there has been fruit. So it's, it's not that, that I wrote so well or anything about me. It's, I think, an idea that was from the Lord. And, um, and you know, I just was, was the one that was blessed to be a vessel. Um, 
and it, so it's been, you know, that, that book, the last I heard is the, the book by, that's been published by Seedma that's sold the most number of copies. Um, so that's been, you know, a metric that shows there's interest in it. There's a hunger. I think that many United Methodists in this moment of, of instability and, and challenge and, and tension and, and chaos in a lot of ways are, I think it, it, one of the positives it does is it causes people to ask, why the heck am I a United Methodist? And unfortunately, a lot of people aren't finding a good answer to that question, and they're they're leaving, and, and it's virtually impossible to keep track of where they've gone and so forth. So we're losing a lot of folks as a result of that. But I think it also makes people more open to questions about heritage. Who who have United Methodists been in times where we're proud of our history and our heritage? Um, and I think the class meeting is uh, has a kind of like resonance as a result of that. Um, so it's been cool to see local churches um, sort of bringing this back. I think that one of the places where it's been adopted the easiest has been among younger adult populations, um, folks who are in seminary, folks who are wanting their faith to work. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons that it's it's it sort of has, has resonated is I think there's a generation of Christians as the, the way that I put it is that being in Seattle in particular for a season, I, I kind of think that Seattle was almost like hitting fast forward on the American church in general and cultural Christianity is already dead in Seattle. Like it's not, it's, it's not just dying, it's already over. Um, and I think that that's a preview of what's happening across the United States. And if that's true, I think in many ways that's good news and it mean, because it means that people who are Christians and people who come to the church are asking real questions about meaning. They're not, they're not wanting kind of cultural accoutrements. They're not just wanting their faith to be a kind of window dressing for their life, but they're wanting to figure out like, I'm here because I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe that he died for the forgiveness of my sins. I believe that he was literally raised from the dead on the third day. And I'm here because I wanna figure out how to really give my life and service and obedience to that Jesus. And churches that have an idea of how to help that do work in people's lives will thrive, I think. And churches that have no clue will die, um, and they should. Um, I think that's um, and that's what should happen to churches that don't know how to help people, you know, actively grow in their faith and, and give their lives more success successively to to Jesus. I, I sort of experienced this in my own life. I heard you speak at New Room a few years ago at the New Room Conference. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about the class meeting and the band meeting, which of course you study in Methodist history. And I've taught it in confirmation as something that Methodists did and mm -hmm. it was a big part of that. But I'd never really done it myself. And the way that I described it is I, I two, there were two other pastors there, two friends of mine from here in Colorado. We grabbed each other after that session and said, we need to start a band meeting. So we started one, we, we met, meet every Thursday. We met this morning. And um, we've been doing it for three or four years now. And the way I describe it is you don't know what you're hungry for until you've tasted it. Mm -hmm. that, you, that you taste this experience of having that kind of intimacy that you just don't get, particularly as a pastor, it's hard to yeah. have that, that intimacy. Yeah. But when we've introduced that to other people, like in our church who have experienced it and they said, I had no idea that this is what I was missing in my faith, a real deep connection. So when you think about these meetings and when you, when you think about structuring them, how are they different than sort of the normal, let's say, Sunday school class? And what happens in each of those meetings and class and band meetings? How are they, how are they different? 
and and why are they so so important? You've kind of talked about that, but give us a little bit of, of a window of what happens inside there. We we actually use the five questions in our band meeting, which are pretty intimidating. Yeah. Uh, and it also keeps you from doing some stuff during the week that you have to think about before you do it or think it because I might have to talk about that on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the I think that the for folks, you know, for example, if somebody's listening to this and thinking about what it would look like to start um, a class or band and kind of what what are the likely obstacles. I think, ironically, the hardest part about starting either of these groups uh, is that they're you're not going to have, I mean, you, I would hope that folks would find the class meeting or the band meeting books to both, both be useful, kind of helpful on ramps or resources to start, but they'll get you through eight weeks. And once you're through with the eight weeks, the, the goal of both books is not for you to go buy a different book and read through it. The goal is for you not to have a book anymore other than scripture um, and, and to be really everything else is stripped away and you're talking about your faith, you know, and you're kind of forced to just talk about what is actually happening in your relationship with God. And so the hardest part about these groups is that many folks will, I think for the first few weeks, it's new and exciting and maybe a little bit scary and kind of like, Oh, I could do it. I didn't die after the first week, or, you know? Um, but at some point, the question usually pops up of, so kind of what's next? Um, are we, is this really it? Is this really all we're going to do? And there's there's kind of two things I say to that. One is, I think of small groups as like organisms more than, you know, like an inanimate object. And that means that they have life cycles. And, and so they die. And uh, some groups need to die sooner than others. And when that happens, it's okay. And my hope is that people won't quit on the idea of small groups, but they'll just realize that this one, this one had sort of, um, you know, perished and it's time to start a new one. And that may mean with new people and, and so forth. Um, but the other piece of it is that folks who, who get it and it clicks in the group, don't ask that question anymore. I mean, just like you just said, Bob, it's, it's a, it's, you get three, four years in and you're not like, oh, is this all we're going to do for the next 15 years? It's, it's what you, you know, that you need to do it for, for every Thursday. Um, because it's a check against um, places where people in their own uniqueness are liable to, to fall and, and to, to betray the faith. And it, so it keeps you humble and grounded in that way. Um, but it also, you know, for me, the magic of it initially, so I, I should say I write about this stuff because I would say it's, it's the number one thing that God has used to, to save my life, to keep me in the faith and to help me keep growing in my faith. Otherwise, I would have made shipwreck of my faith. Um, and, and it's something I still need week after week. Um, even, you know, even after having been at, at this, uh, for a while. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's important for people to, to hear. I mean, I think at that new room, I, I said something to the effect at the end that I wouldn't be here if, if not for being in a band meeting. Um, and I've had to be in many because in my line of work, you, you move. And, um, and so you, I had band meetings that were met in person with people in, in different places. And those had, you know, I had to, I had to take ownership for finding community in new places um, when I had them. But I, I think that's the biggest. So the main thing that happens in every meeting is you, you kind of are going to work through like, what is our, our liturgy? What's kind of the rhythm that the group's going to have from week after week. Uh, and once you get to that, um, the, the challenge is just to stick with it, to kind of let the rhythm and routine do its work. 
Um, one of the things that I say a lot when I'm talking about small group stuff is that, you know, you, you, when you need community, when you need people to be there for you, you either have it or you don't, you can't create it in the crisis. Um, and this, that's probably something that some folks unfortunately are experiencing even right now, kind of in the midst of, you know, the, the, the loneliness and isolation of this uh, coronavirus uh, COVID-19 season that seems like it's just interminable, um, is you either have those structures in place of people you can go to when it was just the unknown and frustration is, you know, just kind of at a boiling point, you've got people you can talk to. And, and it's kind of the, the challenge is if you don't have those people, it's harder to sort of find that in the moment than it is um, to have it in place. And so part of the the magic, so to speak, is that you just show up and you make deposits week after week after week. You just keep making deposits. And at some point, because of the way that life works, something's going to happen. Um, and then you're going to have a support structure in place um, that, that will, will be there, will show up for you. Um, and this is not the question that you asked, but it's a story that I want to tell because it illustrates it for me really well. I've been in band meetings, I think, for probably... Yeah, I've been in, in band meetings for well more than a decade. Um, and last summer, right about now, um, my my parents called and told me that my mom had cancer. Um, and and it was a big surprise to me and it, it, it hit me pretty hard. And uh, so I flew back to Oklahoma to be with my family when my mom had surgery. And, um, and I remember that day. So there are times for me where I wrestle with, um, I think this is probably not uncommon for pastors, but wrestle with kind of wanting to bless my family by being able to play a pastoral role in a particular challenging situation. And also sometimes where I wish I could just be Kevin and feel what I was feeling and have someone else play that role. But I kind of went to the hospital, you know, preparing myself that I was going to be the one to, to pray for my mom and to pray for my family before she went back for surgery. But I was I was actually kind of surprised. Um, I dropped them off, parked the car, and came back in. And my mom had already been taken back to a room, and um, and I was just feeling like kind of jittery and sort of like um, un I was unnerved. And it wasn't this this was not a surgery that was supposed to be life threatening, but it was it was a major surgery. And um, and and anyway, the there was a knock on the door, and I was like, my mind was like, oh no, it's the doctor already, like, you got to do this, and so we, you know, say come in or whatever, and it, it's my band meeting, mm. um, so the people, I live in Georgia, and the, the, the men in my, my group are pastors in Oklahoma and Arkansas, um, and all four of them had gotten up at whatever, you know, ridiculous hour of the morning they had to, to make the drive to Tulsa to be at the hospital, um, early in the morning before my mom went back to surgery. And those four men gathered, circled around my mom's bed with my dad and my brother and I, and one of them prayed a powerful spirit-filled prayer for my mom and for me and my brother and dad and the, the doctors and nurses and so forth. And that was an indescribable blessing. I mean, I told my wife about it afterwards and, um, and I said, I, I think that's probably the most precious gift I've ever been given. Um, it's because it's something you couldn't manufacture. You can't buy that on Amazon. You can't give it to yourself. And um, for them to to give that kind of time and energy uh, just to show up at a time when I needed somebody to hold my arms up for a little bit um, was was a precious gift. You know, so that's 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 the kind of 
that's the kind of thing, you know, but that was after years of, of investment um, to have, to have that kind of uh, thing in place. Um, so it doesn't directly answer your question, but the, the challenge is that it will feel for some people who are not used to it, it will feel monotonous. And even, even sometimes people, it feels pointless to them. Like I don't see anything dramatic happening. Um, but for some people it will mean that they've struggled with a place and the almost like, and ban what happens a lot of times since you're specifically confessing sin, someone will confess the same thing for a while to a point of frustration. And it's almost like the way that God works with that person, they needed to get to that place of like really getting to the end of themselves and just like, why can't I stop doing this? And, and then there's breakthrough that comes from kind of getting to the end of yourself and having people with you in it that are continuing to, to hold up hope to continue to pray for you um, as often as you need it right and um, which is for me constantly um, and and uh, that that's to me that's the that's the power in it um, in, in that kind of consistency and in, in its simplicity you know I sort of feel like if somebody started listening to this podcast and they weren't sold on class and band meetings that after that story, they'd be sold because <laughs> that is a powerful story. And, and I love hearing about what happens in, uh, in those meetings. And so as we think about this overall, uh, it's, it's interesting to me that really it seems as though the goal of these would be the things that you've mentioned, the support that you get, the accountability to your faith, uh, the walking with a similar group of people for a long period of time. Those kinds of goals are so good. But if you were able to expand this to like a global idea, I mean, Methodism, the beauty of it, part of it is that it's global. What do you think the goal of it would be on a global level? What do you think the impact would be of class and band meetings widespread? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that it, 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 it's, it's interesting because in United Methodism in particular, the challenges and needs in different parts of the globe are, can be quite different. I mean, I think the US in some ways is unique and that it's it's still too easy for many people to just be apathetic nominal Christians, um, and in many other parts of of the globe, particularly where the United Methodist Church is growing the fastest, that just doesn't seem to be the challenge that they struggle with. It's more basic um, reliance on God for meeting basic needs, and you know, like when you pray, "Give us this day our daily bread," like that's a, a heartfelt prayer, um, and uh, and so forth. But I think that the the big picture value and goal of it is that you have, you know, if, if the Wesleyan family would recommit to these basic practices, what it would mean is that you would have every single person who's a member of a Methodist or Wesleyan church uh, would be learning how to look at their lives through the lens of the gospel. And I think that's the most powerful part is that you realize that when you kind of start doing this, you realize, oh, I, one of the questions I ask myself a lot on a day-to-day -day basis is X, whatever it is, you know, how, how's my bank account doing or how are my kids doing in school or, you know, whatever it is that it's kind of the thing that, that people kind of use as the lens they're looking at their lives through. And I think when you have the, the class meeting in place in your life, it, it, it helps you to remember, to look at the, the Lord. What is Jesus doing in my life? Um, where is the Holy Spirit at work prompting me? oh, this is something like I felt God's presence in this and, or 
this was an answered prayer. Like I'm going to tell my class meeting about this. I was praying about this and God moved, something happened. Um, and a lot of times I think we miss those things because we pray the prayer and then, and then we're living in the, the kind of um, immediacy of the urgent um, and the, the tyranny of the urgent. And we don't realize like, Oh, this was actually like God's faithfulness to me in this specific moment. So I think that's the kind of key piece globally is just the discipline that we are, we are all prone to distraction. We're all prone to wander uh, and we need a discipline in place that just reminds us like to pay attention. What is God up to in my life and how am I cooperating with what God is trying to do in me and through me, or how am I resisting it? And if I'm resisting it, how can I, you know, confess that and, and, and recommit right to being open. There's a connection here too with the whole idea of sanctification and the idea of Christian perfection that we're actually moving towards something like being renewed in the image of God. And so the class and band meetings were kind of the, the, the vehicle by which Wesley sort of believed we could, we could almost move in that direction with the help of the Holy Spirit. Am I right about that? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the, the best understanding of Wesley's view of entire sanctification or Christian perfection is that it's both crisis and process. So he wants people to pray for God to do it now. And his litmus test for that is if it's by faith and not by works, then it doesn't really matter where you are right now, how broken you are. Like if it's just a gift, then it's a gift you can receive, even if you're, you seem to be miles away from real holiness. But yet there's also a clear expectation in his understanding that wherever you are, there's room to grow where you are. Uh, my seminary professor, when I had Methodist history and doctrine was um, Dr. Doug Strong. And he, I remember, him, I still remember him saying that his kind of way of reframing this was that entire sanctification is giving all that I know of myself to all that I know of God. And that really nicely shows the dynamism that um, what I know of myself today is really different than what I knew of myself when I was in seminary. Um, and also by the grace of God, what I know of God is also deeper um, and, and richer and more complex. And so the more I am able to give more of myself to the, the more of the God that I, I know. And that's, so there, I think there's kind of both aspects of that. And, and that's where, again, that, that sort of basic structure and, and, and rhythm and routine is, uh, is important and why, you know, accountability for something as basic as reading scripture, not all the way through once, but reading scripture every day uh, and spending time in prayer every day is so important because it, it, it's molding and shaping you to be able to know the God more that you want to give the more of yourself that you know, too. Um, I think I might've, that sounded a little more like Yoda than I intended. <laughs> well, we, we are working on the task force for accountable discipleship in the, in the new denomination that was likely to emerge in 2021 and um, I, I actually sent our document to Kevin to kind of look at, and we just finished it today, actually. And that report is going up to the Council of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And one of the things we, we did talk about was this idea of, of tying this back in and saying this can't be a, a, an, an add-on to what we mm -hmm. do. It has to be central to what we do. And that it should be in some ways tied to to our membership in the church. That's what we're trying to recommend, that there's a target we're trying to hit. We're trying to trying to grow Christ-like people. We're trying to, to build a different sort of faith that goes beyond merely merely showing up when it's when it's convenient. 
And yeah. I, I think there's a, there's a real opportunity here for us to, to reboot all of that in, the, in that, in this new opportunity to say, let's look ahead and say, this has got to be the method, the, the engine, as you put it in the book of, of where we go next. Yeah, that's great. That's encouraging. When you think about that, what's your hope for the new Methodism? So I, I think that that gets added. I mean, one of the things that I have been wrestling with for really the whole time I've been kind of studying Methodist history is what is actually unique about Methodism? Um, and that, that came out, I guess, I confess in part because for me, I felt like most of the time that I heard people, whether it was you know, on online, on social media, or whether it was, you know, some kind of official denominational leader. Um, it felt like the things that we said about what was unique about United Methodism almost never actually was. And a lot of times it felt like it more than anything showed how um, narrow of an understanding of the body of Christ we really have and just not not being very ecumenically sensitive or aware. Um, so it kind of, it, it made me feel like you have to just keep going more and more and more deep, more and more specific. Uh, to to really try to figure out what what this is, and for me the, the the way I summarize it is, you know, the early Methodist disciplines were the doctrines and discipline of the Methodist Episcopal Church, and that that signaled that there was a, a a sense that the people called Methodists were a people committed to a particular set of beliefs and a particular set of practices, um, things they believed that informed a way of life, uh, and for me that that I've, I've I believe there is a particular belief that Methodism that marks it as, as moving at least towards distinctiveness. And I think particularly when you combine it with the other one, um, there's a particular practice uh, that I think are, are sort of distinctly Methodist. And that's the doctrine of entire sanctification, this belief that, um, you know, that because of the work that God has already done through Christ um, for us, that sin is not necessary in the lives of those who are in Christ, those who are covered by the blood of Christ, um, that it isn't, it, it can't be the case that it's necessary uh, that that we sin um, after we've been born again, and uh, entire sanctification, of course, fleshes that out in, in more nuanced ways than I can do justice to here. But I think that's really important. And, and Wesley said it's the grand depositum that God lodged with the people called Methodists, and for the sake of propagating or spreading it, chiefly He appeared to have raised us up. So Wesley's saying to us at the end of his life. I mean, he wrote it in a letter to a specific person, but. He's saying towards the end of his life, I think the reason the Holy Spirit breathed life into this revival is to teach and proclaim and spread this particular doctrine of entire sanctification. So I think that's something we should really pay attention to. And then that, that as, you, as you've already kind of pointed to, it, that, that belief only comes to life through the practice of watching over one another in love through small group formation. Um, so small group formation is not a means unto itself. It's not it's not something you just do because it's cool and it's in vogue. It's something you do because you desperately want to grow in holiness. You desperately want to have, you know, grow in your faith in Christ, understand um, God's love for you more, receive it more deeply and, and walk in greater freedom. Mm -hmm. And so I think those two things together, um, if, if we really do the hard work to, to root those into who we are once again, um, I expect actual revival. Like I expect mm -hmm. to see real revival um, but it's not a gimmick. And I think the, you know, I, I've, I feel like I've been veering towards a sales pitch, but I, I just, I do want to say briefly that it's hard. It, 
being in, in these kinds of small groups is hard and sometimes they fail. Um, sometimes they die as I alluded to. And so part of what I would hope is I, I would hope there would be a, a, a holy perseverance um, by, um, by this new group that would say, you know what, these things may not always feel fulfilling. They may not always feel like they're a part of my grand, you know, individual self-fulfillment plan, but I'm going to stick to it because there are people who have walked these roads before me and there's been, there's a legacy of fruitfulness that's been found there. Um, and so I'm going to, I'm going to kind of stick in it and stick with it uh, when it feels great and is rewarding and when it feels kind of like drudgery and, and, and more challenging. Cause you might have somebody in your band meeting that's weird like me. I mean, you know, and so sometimes we just have to like put up with each other. <laughs> well, I, I do find that in my own band meeting, you know, where some, some weeks, Somebody has something more uh, pressing that might take the whole hour or, or we might have a week where we say, well, not much happened this week, you know, too busy to sin, which may be a sin in itself. Uh, but we, we wind up sort of shifting depending on where, where people are. And so sometimes yeah. it is just, well, I'm doing this because it's Thursday but there are other times when it's like, I can't wait to get to Thursday. And then there are other times where it's like, I'm not sure I really am looking forward to Thursday. Mm -hmm. you know? yeah. and I think all of those are important. Yep, absolutely. I agree. Well, Kevin, we cannot thank you enough for taking the time to be with us today. What you have shared is just so valuable. And I'm excited to see uh, where the future of this goes. I'm excited to see what God does as he revives this idea of class and band meetings uh, in, in our denomination and in our world. I think it's just going to be really exciting. But thank you for the time that you have spent with us today. Thanks for having me. We want to remind you that you can send your questions and comments to us via email at podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. We're still collecting questions for a future mailbag. So if you have questions uh, that we can uh, answer for you about the WCA, about the future of Methodism, about class and band meetings, please feel free to email us again, podcast at wesleyancovenant.org. We also want to tell you that we're now on Twitter at WCA pod. That's WCA pod. If you are a Twitter fan, you can find us there, get information about upcoming episodes. Again, we thank Kevin Watson for joining us. We look forward to seeing how this movement continues to grow within the current Methodism and the new Methodism that is to come. So thank you. And we'll see you again here next time on Holy Conversations, the podcast of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Thank you.